but I liked that mono blue list because, man, I just love a deck with, like, two Wormcoil Engines and three Sundering Titans. <laughs> He's just like, know what you're about. I was playing MTGO when Shock Trooper was playing Mono Bluetron in Standard, so I just remember queuing into that guy for oh, that was a literally... Long time ago. For 20 years, he's been playing the same deck. It's just like kind of mind-boggling to think about. I mean, I don't remember Mono Blue being at the Tron deck. Maybe that was before the Signets came out, because when the Signets came out, everyone was playing Blue X Tron. This was Kamigawa Mirrored in Standard. There was a Mono Blue Tron deck and a Mono Green Tron deck. Mono Green Tron was just tooth and nail, because you wanted to get two forests, Tron, that's tooth and nail entwined, which usually got like... Platinum Angel, Luan, and Abunas, because no one could beat that back then. There was also Mephitros and... Um, Triskelion. Uh, Triskelion. And then some people would play two Mephitros vampires and, like, Uyo, Twin, Prophet, to copy their nails <laughs> to get two... Like, there's a lot of nonsense that happened, and most of it was stopped by the fact that Mirrodin eventually rotated and Tron was not very good. It, actually, I think Tron might have rotated at the same time. But yeah, Shock Trooper, just same mono blue Tron deck. I remember when Mono Blue Tron broke out in Standard, it was some British guy named Sam Gummersall did well at British Nats with it. It had Arcbound Reclaimer and Mindslaver in it. That's before uh, Academy Ruins was printed, where you really yes. had to dig deep for the Mindslaver yeah. loops. <laughs> How do we... Mindslavering my opponent one time doesn't feel like enough, so I really gotta put something horrible in my deck to make this work. I'm so curious if CCR knows what Arcbound Reclaimer is. Without I'm typing it, it in right now. It's a four mana modular two I, card. I thought I thought it was a four mana modular guy. It's a uh, a little bit worse than Academy Ruins for <laughs> recurring your Mindslaver. The loop was two Reclaimers and Mindslaver, and you could eventually like slowly slaver them enough until they wanted to concede. The problem is Arcbound Reclaimer is a really bad magic card, which right. was the actual issue. Then people later figure out, like, why, why are we doing this? Why don't we just cut these and just play a bunch of Mindslavers and just play Platinum Angels and shit and just not even care? Right. You could just play your set of Mindslavers, and then once you do the first one, hopefully you have another one. But no, you got you got to go infinite. Uh-huh. Ristron was in 9th edition. Like, that, oh, that's wait, why that's... it was legal with Ravnica. Right. Oh, like you're Urza's, right, you're right. The Urzatron was, like, so nice and standard. They're like, let's run it back yeah, for another two I, years. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. What a funny era of magic design where they were like, let's just make sure that Tron is in standard for as long as possible. They, they were like, two years with Tron, not quite enough. Let's run it back, you know? Yeah. Do it again. The sequel. So I'll, I'll tell some old stories real quick. One of my favorite FNM decks was Wildfire Tron. It re- featured four Kaiga the Tidestar and four Wildfire. Yeah, I remember that deck. When people started playing Shining Shoal, this was really problematic because Kaiga, like Shining Wildfire, is a really bad lineup for Shining Shoal. I will tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing the Ghost Dad deck that uh, Ben Goodman, People's Monday, and them played at that Pro Tour, just because it annihilated basically every Is a deck in existence because none of them could beat Shining Shoal. Like you would just play creatures, they'd be like, "All right, sweep you," and you're like, "Not." Nah. You take five damage instead, and none of my creatures are dead, so you're dead now. Yes, because you get to pick and choose like which of the damage gets prevented, because it's all dealt at the same time. And I'll, I'll tell you the funniest Shining Shoal story, which is my opponents have one life, there's no creatures in play, and I cast Shining Shoal targeting them, and they're like laughing, and they're like, yeah, resolved. And I'm like, okay, I choose Caves of Coos as my source of damage, have it for white, kill you. <laughs> that is sick. That's a lovely play. Shining Shoal is one of those cards 
actually at Pro Tour Philadelphia, Gadiel got the wrong ruling from MTGO and insisted like Shining Troll worked the way it did. Except on MTGO, like if they stack damage, you couldn't choose a source of damage being a creature in a graveyard. But IRL, you're supposed to be able to. And he like killed himself in an unusable game. Like he just like stacked damage with Kagamaro, and the opponent's like, "All right, show you." He's like, "Okay, I'll stack my Kagamaro in response," and then he died instead. So, yeah, Shining Shell like is one of those cards that like reads really simple. Like, oh yeah, oh, like no. th- this this yeah, it just like prevents this damage. It deals it over here, but it just like because of how magic rules work, it's one of the most complicated cards. I think they could print it today and sure. it would mostly be straight up it's just like back when it was printed like pyroclasm was legal and standard and widely played and that just like wildfire pyroclasm shining soul is just like you're you're dead all my creatures are alive uh Amirius call made shining show a lot better i will say that yeah yes but that's just like another card you can pitch like the the whole rules standpoint i think shining soul does play like straight up mostly intuitively if it was printed into standard which it won't be because it's an arcane spell. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there would need to be a functional reprint, and then you could run eight of them. Yeah, what would we do? <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 300 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. Joining us today for this very special 300th episode, Jarvis Yu. Hey, Jarvis. Hello, with my 3-0 with two hands impression again. No, it's it's amazing. You've made a 3 and a 0 and a 0 with only two hands. Incredible yep. work. Are you going to... Are you going to edit in some air horns for episode 300? <laughs> oh my god. I'll just, I'll edit in some like, this is madness, this is Sparta, <laughs> like things, just kind of like throughout the episode. Yeah, that probably won't break immersion. Sounds good. <laughs> it's kind of, it's it's our aesthetic, like we're this dark and gritty Frank Miller inspired podcast, right? That's what we've <laughs> been this whole time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. I don't know, I don't have any particular like celebratory plans for this i'm glad we could have jarvis with us we're gonna talk about magic the gathering as we always do jarvis coming off of a pretty successful nrg weekend 5-2 into the the team tournament on saturday Mm -hmm. and then a top eight in legacy on sunday yep played in the modern scene on saturday so we get to talk about the modern format some more and jarvis don't let like too much of your disdain for this current modern format (laughs) leak through (laughs) and then we'll make some time to talk about legacy because i know that like legacy is pretty interesting now and we just haven't Mm -hmm. chatted about it in a long time so having you fresh off of a top eight is a good opportunity to like talk about post ban post lord of the rings uh legacy yeah i'm not gonna police jarvis's disdain either (laughs) you know if you hate modern right now that's fine (laughs) that's yeah we we state our opinions and we're not ashamed of them type podcasts so uh, but why don't you talk to us about your, you know, tournament on Saturday? I know you played four color. What is, you know, what made you choose that deck for the tournament? And then, you know, your specific build. I know that there are a few flex slots and also a few different philosophies on how to build the deck and stuff. And and I think that as one of the clear best decks in the format, it's good to just keep delving into this thing and understanding this deck as much as possible. I think for me personally, the most appealing 
part about four core is that you basically are not too unfavored versus most decks uh and you're pretty strong versus a bunch of decks who are just trying to like cast creatures and stuff like i would say you annihilate small creature decks generally speaking like yogmoth i generally feel good versus hammer except when i'm playing against literally ari and i then like i'm like kind of like 45 percent somehow i still haven't really <laughs> figured out why it's specifically him thinking he might just know me too well is the problem <laughs> If you know someone really well and you keep playing against them, they can get like an edge in a matchup that's generally pretty bad for a perceived deck. So I think that's probably what's going on there, if I had to guess. Interesting. Is he... I I mean, not to delve too much into this very specific, like, <laughs> sure. man versus man matchup that is completely irrelevant to anybody except for the two of you. But like, is he doing anything specifically different or does I... he just seem to be reading you a little bit better than other people are? Well, also, like, I think he just understands that when to take risks and when not to take risks, which sure. I think is the most difficult about... That's the most difficult part of playing Hammer, I think, generally speaking. It's just... Yeah, I think a lot of it is subconscious. Like, you just yeah see yeah. things that you recognize in the other person. But, I mean, you can always ask Ari. Ari listens to this podcast. Yeah. Ari, Ari, tell Jarvis. <laughs> tell, me, tell me how... Well. I did play Hammer twice in the tournament, and I think m m both of my opponents were not good at navigating the matchup is the kindest way of putting it. So I, like, destroyed them. I think if there's, like, a skill difference for, for like, the 4C player versus the Hammer player, it's going to not look close, like, generally speaking. Like, everything will just be dead forever is what generally happens. It's also a little trickier now. With, like, with Hammer against uh, Four Color, you do have the window of protection of everything, which... sure. Some people may not have fully incorporated mm -hmm. into their their game plans yet. Yeah, both the both my hammer opponents had mana tithe in their deck post board, so I guess that's kind of a nod to the one ring because if you mana tithe it and get a window, your opponent's just fucking dead. I think like most of the time, oh, most yeah. of they have a really good follow up. Whereas like I was conscious of that because they didn't in game two hammer versus forcing they play nothing on turn one. You have to ask yourself if your opponent's like a rational person. Like, what's in their hand? And I'm just like, all right, I'm going to get this Halfling Mantithe and I won't care. And like, sure enough, like, what are they going to do? Not Mantithe, a, a delighted Halfling on turn one? Like, it's just, it's just incredible. Like, I mean, I traded one mana spell for one mana spell. That's way better than trading a four mana spell for a one mana spell, you know? The deck that plays 31 drops. What are you up to over there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. So, yeah, I think, generally speaking, I like the 4C Omneth deck as, like, a deck versus random piles of cards that people bring as well. Like, I think if someone just shows up like like a Merfolk deck or a Goblins deck, I can't really imagine losing to them very often unless my draw is like completely dysfunctional. And in the meantime, I think I have pretty good plans in the post-board games versus most of the common decks. The 4C Mirror itself, uh, I went public saying that I think that matchup is kind of a mess. And I would normally not play Emrakul the Promise in my sideboard, but extreme times call for extreme measures. <laughs> like, you really need a nuclear option in those post-war games. Because, let, I'll, I'll just say it real fast, the problem with the One Ring mirrors as opposed to Hogak mirrors is no one dies, whereas in Hogak mirrors, someone dies just instantaneously. So, like, the opposite problem is the, tru is the truth of how the Hogak era went. Like, no one dies because you can just kill all of their stuff and draw cards, like, forever. And you can also just like loop your one rings and like it's just completely nonsensical how it's how hard it is to kill someone through the one ring. Yeah, a couple of the modern challenges finals have been like 
four color mirrors where someone is streaming the finals yeah. and I'm just like, you know, watching some of it. I go downstairs, I make my entire meal, come back upstairs, stream still on, still in their game, deep in their game. <laughs> just like 10 cards left in library feasts. Just like, we'll listen. Well, so I will say, I think one thing that's really important about the four color mirrors is you don't like needlessly draw cards for no reason. You actually have to have a purpose of to why you're drawing cards. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to end up in a very weird situation where there's actually not enough cards left in your deck to cover all of your opponent's stuff. So basically, you should only draw cards to get to seven cards. Like, there's not a reason to, like, go above seven cards, really. Like, that doesn't do anything except make you more likely to deck out. Yeah, I so jump in and correct me at any time if I say something that you disagree with. But I have found that the mirrors... There's really only two ways that the games play out. One way is that one player sticks a ring and the other player doesn't, and it's not even close. Like, mm-hmm. there's just no way for the player without a ring to to win those games. Like, your other haymakers just lose to all of the cards. You slam an Elishnorn, they find a Teferi mm-hmm. or a Prismatic Ending and just keep going. The other way is that both players have rings and you, and like, you each have a huge amount of resources all of your cards kill their cards, all of their cards kill your cards, Mm -hmm. and you have to manage all of your cards really carefully and never discard a card that has an effect on the game to hand size or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, Notice that I didn't say that there's a type of game where neither player has a ring because (laughs) you can't kill your... Like, nobody's killing anybody before somebody draws a ring. That's not what these cards do. Like, the decks are so defensive that, like you know, you will get to eight or nine lands before anybody is threatening lethal and somebody will hit a ring by that point. So ring is relevant in basically every single mirror between four color versus four color. And you have to know how to play these two types of games like pretty carefully and also manage your clock very well. Yeah, I think I actually had an advantage there because I think a lot of the games where you have to take a lot of game actions, your autopilot has to be good enough where you don't mm-hmm. make like egregious mistakes. I think I'm actually pretty good at that because I've just have like a thousand mat like however many matches of magics under my belt that I'm not going to do something egregiously bad on my autopilot. I think that's very like good. And I also understand like before the tournament, I just thought about how these matches played out and I concluded that it's gonna be like a very weird, like hearthstone control mirror where every card in your deck actually matters so if you discard a solitude at some point that will like hurt you like 13 turns later when you're down one solitude i was actually thinking about that and i was thinking about playing one endurance just to loop all of my removal spells back in in an elongated game like you'll serve immortality style then i'm just like eh, endurance is too bad to do that and i also wasn't planning on siding in endurances in the mirrors because i don't think it actually does enough except in like the type B game where both of you have one ring and every single thing gets killed forever. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do that, I wonder if it's just like, if you, I mean, I guess Endurance is a more acceptable main deck card than just yeah. putting the Emrakul in your main deck in this like deck that never actually hits Delirium, so. No, this this is not a Delirium deck on like a long time ago when I played the Traverse Bobble on Oli Heat Delirium deck. That, that was a Delirium deck. You could like Emrakul your opponent pretty easily on turning if you wanted to here yeah. like it's just more incidental that i assume i'm going to get to mindslaver because i've drawn like 12 cards like or you know 15 cards in an average game which normally doesn't happen in a match of magic 
but these mirrors, no one dies. Like you take natural draw steps. Eventually, you one ring like a bunch of cards. Yeah, I I hate playing Emrakul, but I think it's just the best option. The Emrakul turns are really funny too because yeah. it's it's like. I will take your turn, I will make you draw five cards with this ring, and then I will kill your stuff with your stuff, and then go to end step and discard all of your good cards to hand size. Like, it's such a weird Mind Slaver turn. Well, for me, it was a lot easier, because the only time I actually slavered my opponent, my opponent had six cards in deck, and she had Elishnorn out. And let me tell you, if <laughs> your four-color opponent has Elishnorn out, and you Emrakul the opponent, it's trivial to make them draw six cards in one turn. It's like... Yeah. It's mind-bogglingly... Like, also, we were on, like, turn, like, 15 or whatever. Everyone had, like, 9,000 lands in play. Like, you know, like, not killing your opponent from there is basically impossible in a 4 mirror. Yeah, another good reason to, like, draw the minimum number of cards with your rings that you need to just, like, keep seven cards in your hand at all times. Yeah, also, this is a game where I ended at, like... I was at four life going into my final turn. There were two counters on my one ring. So I think... If she had just like a few more combat steps, I would have easily lost the game. Like not even close. Even maybe through an Emrakul. Like I'm, I'm not sure what would have happened, but I just knew. Basically, this was a game that started where she had the one ring uncontested for a while. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is a me decking my opponent game because it's going to be impossible to kill them or even keep parity game. Like so, I have to get massively lucky. So I just played as though I was going to top deck Emrakul deep into the game. And deck my opponent. Yeah, and I I found that in like a lot of matchups, you know that that is one specific game and like one instance of this. But I found in a lot of matchups, playing four color, like the most important thing is to have clear visualizations of how mm -hmm. you're going to win this game and how you could lose the game because especially post board, a lot of times you're playing like a prison deck and it's going to take you a while to like deal the twentieth damage to your opponent. So you need to, and you have the tools to. But you need to make sure you are closing the window so that like a top deck breach doesn't kill you or something like that. Yeah, like when when I lost game three to the team that actually won, like so basically our legacy seed had lost and uh it was a green mirror in the pioneer seat, but our green player didn't only lost to spirits and won like four mirror matches. But I think he <laughs> just so it was a combination of he's really competent and he always just made his opponent try to combo him and half his opponents just didn't know how to combo him and he oh, knew goodness. how to combo. So it's just like, you know, if you're going to show up to a tournament and you're playing green, please just go look at Bobby's thing and just it'll take you five minutes to learn how to do it. Like it's not it's not a big deal. And honestly, if you just explain it well, you don't even have to do the steps. Yeah, I, I've never had anyone anyone make me play out a thing where i have like laid out exactly each step i'm gonna do and mm -hmm. like oh this guy just knows what he's talking about yeah you got it <laughs> the, the combo is also it it is very easy you just need to know your mana threshold for like two different mm -hmm. situations and then you just stone you start stone braining them and it's like not complicated so or silexing if that's what you prefer no just stone brain them it's <laughs> faster and easier <laughs> I mean, if it's paper, um, you've got the rest of the turn. Sorry, Jarvis, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know, that that's what happened. And in, like, game three, I had my opponent dead in two turns. Like, if I drew Boseju, a Teferi to reset my endurance, or a Leyland Binding, or a Dovin's Veto, I easily win the game because I just cover a breach from killing me. And this goes back to the time when I played against uh, your pal, Alan. Like, it's I think it's actually pretty straightforward for 4C to play against that deck. 
The difference is they're a lot better at drawing cards now, so you actually have to kill them a lot faster because it's re easier for them to re-up the combo now instead of just like stopping them once and they're like, oh, they used a bunch of stuff. It's not so easy for them to rebuild. Now it's like kind of trivial for them to rebuild, honestly. Like if they just cast one ring and they have an emery and they can loop one rings and you can't actually kill them, like it gets mm -hmm. kind of out of hand very quickly. Yeah, Ledger Shredder was not a fantastic card. It just like kind of filled a hole in the deck. But now you just don't even have to play that card. You're just playing the one ring instead. Oh no, you instead sometimes when you're about to die to burn, you get an extra turn and then end up killing them. Like yeah. it's kind of fantastic. Like th this is what I find so egregious about it. It's a protection, it's like a fog staple to a harmonize, and then like you can just cast another one so the first one doesn't even kill you. Like it someone somewhere I'm not blaming Spike or Canister because when they saw it, it didn't look like that, I was told. So someone else in that team had to do something about this, really. Like I'm confident that the instruction that came down was like, okay, the One Ring has to be good. Like, it has to be a good card. There's no way that they could print a boring or just, like, bad card that's the One Ring from the Lord of the Rings. So, you know, that's a tough rope sure. to walk when the, just the card has to be good and you know 50 50 odds that you're just gonna overshoot it probably my conspiracy yeah. theory is so well here's the fact that casual play design did most of the heavy lifting on this set. yep like it's primarily casual play design set and they did an article where they talked about designing the ring and i know that they did most of their testing of the cards with Commander. So that's all I expect yep. people to play with it. Yeah. So I don't think they ever really went through the motions of what if we have more than one, the one right. ring in a deck? <laughs> that's like kind of my my conspiracy they, theory. Well, they should have tested it with like Frex and Metamorph and Sculpting Steel then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, then you would figure it out pretty fast, I think, actually. I'm not even joking. Like... If I look at that card and I'm playing an artifact deck in Commander, I would just want to put freaking clones into my deck to clone it. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think a little tweaking such that playing a second one ring doesn't do the thing that it does right now it would I would improve my modern experience right now, at least. That's the annoying part to me is when you your opponent has drawn three to six cards and then they just play another one. The drawback from the previous one is gone and... And they get to just draw another card that turn. You you were like, okay, I guess you're drawing three cards off of it this turn. And then there's just like another card that they get this turn too. What's what's funny is, and I don't mean to throw you under the bus too much here, CCR, but I've been watching some of your streams and VODs. Mm -hmm. And occasionally you'll have the like, you know, I've drawn six cards. I'm going to play another ring. And then you just like don't draw a card off the next time. And you like go to your next turn. And you're like, oh, maybe I should have drawn a card. But your hand is like seven just, heaters. Right. So like I forget like, about it because yeah. it doesn't matter. Because my hand is like a Teferi, a Leyline Binding, a Prismatic Ending, and an Endurance or whatever. And it's just like, I don't need more cards than this to win this game. Yeah. It's just like, but you have the option to if you want to, I guess. Right. And, and, and no, I mean, it's like I should draw that card. But 
like my brain is just like I'm satisfied. I've I've drawn enough cards. Like I'm full right now. I don't I don't need it. But I, you know that that's just like what happens to me. It's too many. I sometimes my brain does just kind of like break down in these like very big games when there's just like too many roads to take. And that's a part of my game that I'm like actively working on is like in these very big games with like a thousand branching paths more quickly going down the correct path without using too much of my game clock and while like making closer to the correct choice and and not missing too many things so that that's a thing that i'm actively trying to pursue being better at right now Mm -hmm. playing four color is like one of the main ways that i'm like forcing myself into that situation more often to be fair i think a lot of people are really bad at that aspect of the game and it's it's really hard yeah. I, I think that aspect of the game, I'm not really sure how to describe how I got there. I think I just played a lot of late game decks, essentially. Like, what's the best way of putting it? Like, I think for a lot of standard formats, a deck like that doesn't really exist. It's usually like incremental, like get slightly ahead instead of like get infinity resource. I guess, I guess like the Genesis Ultimatum Omnath deck was like similar to this in a lot of ways, mm. weirdly enough. Oh, I guess it ha- literally had Uro, Omnath, Lotus, Cobra, so I don't know. That I guess I think a lot of it is just sitting down before you even play a match and write down what you expect to happen, and then like going into the match, you have some idea. Like I I know Matthias Hunt, a friend of mine. Uh, he used to write a deck article for him for himself before mm-hmm. each tournament to really make himself think about it. Yeah. And I think that's that sounds a lot like homework, but it's useful homework, is what I would say. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the thing that when I get distracted and I stop thinking about stop making like the two thoughts in my mind being like, how do I win this game and how do I lose this game? Whenever Mm -hmm. I'm uh, like, I lose the like, okay, I'm ahead. I only need to think about like the ways that my opponent can kill me this game. Uh, Whenever I lose sight of that and I'm just like, let's draw cards, let's put stuff into play, like let's accumulate resources (laughs) when I'm just accumulating resources. That's not good enough that's not playing magic anymore that's just like casting spells and and i think that keeping like a laser focus on like i have a lot of resources how can my opponent kill me this game and how do i just make sure that that doesn't happen like that's the key to to navigating these like super high resource spots i've i made it very easy on myself to learn the skill because i play almost exclusively very linear decks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty simple to be like all right how am i gonna win well i've only got like two ways to win in my decks so, so let's <laughs> let's get that kci into play let's see yeah. how can my opponent stop me and what do i need to do that's like yeah. what i've been about <laughs> but yeah i guess i did digress a bit like the reason i chose to build the deck like in this fashion like very mid-rangey is i think this gives you the best way to not have too many bad draws in any matchup like, I think conceivably you could play Azorius Splash Ren, which I've seen going around uh, with like counter spell and force negation, which theoretically give you an edge in the semi mirror if everyone's just trying to tap out. Then you realize like in the games where you don't kill Halfling, this actually is a huge liability in a mirror. And mm-hmm. also like I think just generally speaking, I bet I could run my opponent out of counter spell like before they like actually kill me, and then I will just cast more stuff and then they'll die to it. Like, obviously, like, them having the ability to say no to anything is obviously a big deal, but that implies a lot of things. That implies their mana works. 
for some reason, their deck only plays three red and six, which I don't really understand. Like, If you're going to the trouble of splashing a red-green card in your blue-white deck, maybe we play four. <laughs> I just don't understand that deck, I think, is part of it. But I also don't understand it because I never lose to it whenever I was playing just like four color, even though like people were like, oh, how do you beat counterspell? I'm like, I don't know. I just fucking cast all my spells. They usually run out. Like, it's not rocket science. You can only play around counter spells from that deck if they get mana screwed. If they don't get mana screwed, then you should just jam everything until they run out. Yeah, and you're always going to have enough cards. Like, it's yeah. very hard to run out of cards. And my plan post board for specifically that deck is I'm citing in all my Dovin's vetoes and veils and just trying to set up a situation where they either get vetoed out of the game or they have to run into a veil and they also lose because veil is really messed up when it works. I mean, the problem with the counterspell plan in that matchup, like, you know, some counterspells are fine, but the problem with leaning sure. on counterspells is if a Delighted Halfling sticks, if a Teferi hits the table, or if oh, your yeah. opponent just draws a Veil of Summer, like, these are all not just good against you, but they're utter blowouts that, like, turn off the mm -hmm. text on your cards. And heaven forbid you have a counterspell, a Teferi hits the board, and then you, like, draw another one two turns later. Yeah, and obviously, like, the way the Zorius deck is set up is... It's obviously better versus Living End, but I'm I would argue that the way my deck is set up, I'm not even that much worse versus Living End in a postboard game than the Zorius deck is. Well, I mean that's the thing is like four color is always like fine again, fine to great mm -hmm. against Living End postboard. It the question is just like, do you want to make sacrifices to make your game one not just like do can I get it to fairy and play? I'm a huge not believer in Chalice of the Void in modern personally. Like I think it's one of one of those cards that people love to play, but I think it's super overrated. And it's often misplayed heavily, is what I would say as well, watching people play with the card. Yes, I agree with all those points. <laughs> and I'm like a Chalice like enjoyer, but I mm -hmm. I don't think it's been particularly good at any point. I, I think it's often fine to have one in your sideboard for Cascade decks, and that's about the limit I would have doing that. Because, like, the other thing I hated about Chalice way back when was, like, Daryl's like, oh, you should play three Chalice and four Veils and just Veil your Chalice through your own Chalice. And I'm just like, this sounds like a completely nonsensical plan. Why don't I just move one of these Chalices to Lavinia? So if I draw both, I don't have to draw a Veil to Splinter Twin. Like, my second Chalice. To Splinter Twin, a bad Splinter Twin. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm two for wanting myself to get more insurance. Where, like, I think half of the time in that matchup postboard, they just start casting their shit as well like because you have like a million chalices or whatever yeah i have not found the curator of mysteries plan to basically ever defeat four color but you know you, you try it i think it's easier with oliphant and uh generous because those things are really big if mm -hmm. you get to that stage in the game i don't think the like the architects of will being a hill giant can kill your opponent and you need the sunken ruins or you done something insane like put the trolls in your deck to be a swamp cycler so i, I do want to take a second and remark that i believe that like i am all for trying things like i know nasif was playing a living end build with fables in it and like i'm like kind of pro trying fable in living end i'm like totally for giving that a shot there was a time where i was like is there a way to build living end with season pyromancer in it as like a way to play a little more mid-rangey like threaten to fairies etc etc so i'm i'm for trying that stuff i believe that there will never be a good living end deck with the troll in it 
I just don't think that there's a way to make swamps work in that deck and and make the troll like actually good. Like you already have two great cyclers, two great land cyclers already in your colors, so it's not really adding anything to the deck. And just looking at every build with a troll in it, I'm just like, this would be a lot better without swamps in this deck. I think. Just just wait until they unveil the Golgari three mana cycling cards, Modern Horizons three. I mean, singing another tune. Yeah, like <laughs> right. You know, this this is all like uh, assuming that they don't print some great card that demands that you have black mana in your deck. Then sure, if that happens, then this is a different thing. But, but, but with since the cards, they never print good black cards. <laughs> well, oh yes, God. and you can't put bowmasters in your living end deck. So, barring the printing of something fantastic and interesting, like with the cards we have right now, troll isn't going to work in a living end deck for like mana base reasons swamps don't don't fit in there and also for pitch card counts like you know yes they pitch to grief but what are you doing like are you cutting architects or street race from your deck maybe you cut some architects but that was a blue card and so now your forces get harder to cast and so i haven't seen a, a troll deck that's like okay i'm comfortable with my pitch cards in this deck it like messes up the counts in like a way that isn't good for you just uh revive john cascade living in with deadshot minotaurs and demonic dread let's go yes i love i love downgrading from my guys that attack for like five to eight damage back down to having a bunch of guys that attack for three that's three, really where yeah, i want to go no really love it when i get two fulminator mages out and have no clock generous end is super super good and so is uh so is the red one oliphant I mean, I, I saw people don't play a lot of Olfants, but I think what they're missing is Olfants are going eight power creature. And double trample is really yeah, good. Yeah, that's because a lot of your creatures just have high power, but they're easily jump blocked. Right. If you just like, like all right, plus two, plus zero trample there. Oh, this is a lethal attack that you have to lose your entire board to. So I don't even have to living end you again because you have no board because you've jump blocked everything. Great. We take that. I, I keep... Like seeing lists that are not 14 land, seven land cyclers, and I keep like cutting a land cycler and putting like the 15th land in, but then I just keep coming back to 14, seven because it doesn't mess up my, my hands that much and have like, you always want to have one of the land cyclers. Like yeah, your draws are just so much better if you have one or two of those. It's kind of funny when I tried the deck, I just like thought to myself, what do I want to cut? My instinct was to cut all of the Waker Waves. I don't know if that's actually correct. And I just played 15-8 instead. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that playing eight land cyclers is is totally fine. Uh, mm. Waker Waves is, I don't know, it does some like subtle things that are like pretty important. It's like sure. one of the best ways of finding your Cascader. like sideboard cards. Yeah. It digs a little deeper oh, for sure. your Cascader. Like, you know, this is the problem with the decks that where people are like, let me let me fit like 11 land cyclers in there. And then they have cut a bunch of the cyclers. And then it's like, oh, I don't actually draw my real cards now. So a waker is just like very efficient at that. And also when you're sideboarding and you're cutting a couple of cyclers, then it like artificially inflates your actual cycler sure. density a little higher. So it's also, you know huge and means you can never die on the backswing to like their like couple of Ch dragon's rage channelers that they got back from a living end or something like that that murktide dumped but into generous ant 
But generous, yes, generous end helps with that too, for sure, for sure. Why does it have reach? Why does it make food? Who can say? It's a very thankful tree folk, I guess. The number of games that I have living ended and then untapped at two life with a food token in play against burn and my opponent's just like, I guess I just lose to that food token now. Yeah. Secret living in cascade into some food tokens. <laughs> that, that would be great in some scenarios. So we should go into just like kind of deck by deck the metagame and do some like sure. quick hits in a second. I do want to mention one thing that I am. So the the problem, the tough thing with Living End right now is that as we'll go over, Scam is heavily played and very good. That matchup is difficult and I am exploring different ways to make that matchup less difficult. Uh, my latest kick is that Subtlety is pretty good against Rakdos for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. It helps keep Voidwalker off the table without putting it into the graveyard. You know, griefing and taking a Voidwalker, like griefing and seeing a Voidwalker in their hand is like a pick your poison sort of moment. Like the game is going to be hard one way or the other and you need to figure out like how you're going to deal with it. Put their Voidwalker on top or bottom of their deck and you get to defer the problem for a while. Uh, and and maybe it doesn't really bother you that much because a Voidwalker in play that hasn't exiled your cyclers and has summoning sickness is not really as dangerous. It can be dangerous. You know, they can like fatal push it in response to a living end or, or undying malice in response to a living end, and then it causes problems. But one of the other things that having four subtleties in your deck post board against Rakdos does is one of the ways you beat Voidwalker is you end of turn violent outburst for enough power that you can kill them before it gets over summoning sickness. One of the other ways you beat Voidwalker is by having another living end. So you living end, their Voidwalker is in their graveyard, so it comes back. They go to their turn, cast living end, and then you untap and just cast a living end back, and then hopefully that's enough to kill them. One of the cool things you can do with a subtlety is that if it's in your graveyard, you don't have the violent outburst, you don't have another shardless agent. So you all you could do is shardless agent, bring back a board, but that brings back their Voidwalker from their graveyard, so they're going to living end you. If you had a subtlety in your graveyard, that comes into play. You can put your shardless put agent, agent back, top, yeah. and then you have another living end ready to go. So I'm I'm I think that the four subtlety post board against Rakdos is the best configuration that I've found so far. And I'm, I'm working on like, you know, how do it, the thing is that like you have to address or you have to be aware of all of the problems out of them. Like they can chalice you. They have void Walker. They could have Leyline of the void post board, which, you know, at least the same cards address chalice and Leyline of the void. They can also blood moon you. They can like start with Raghavan and then just like make treasures and kind of like outpace you. They can dump Furies into their graveyard with their discard outlets or just by evoking them. Like there's a lot of problems and it's a tough matchup that requires you to play very well the whole time. And if your opponent understands all of their Voidwalker interactions, it gets really complicated. But, you know, things that I'm thinking about at least. But yeah, so we should go over just kind of like stuff that's doing well right now and I, I think the natural place to go after that little rant was that Rakdos midrange won, or Rakdos scam won like basically every tournament this weekend. Really? Did it really? Yeah. It it won. Oh, it won three of them. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Three of five. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it won the showcase qualifier. It won 
or it won and got second in the showcase qualifier, which is, you know, a small tournament, but it's all good players taking it extremely seriously. Won the first modern challenge on Saturday. It won the second modern challenge on Saturday. It won, I guess it won this face-to-face qualifier. That's a small tournament though. But yeah, and and was in basically like every one of the top eights. So Scam is like the mid-range non-one ring deck that is doing well right now. And uh, it's it's strong. Yeah, I'm looking at these lists. Okay, thank God most people cut Castle Lock Lane. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh no, wait, did the person that won played Castle Lock Lane? That would deeply upset me. Well, a couple of people won, so... This oh my god, the Castle Octween person won in the showcase. <laughs> I guess in the like actual mirror, it's actually probably good to have that card in your deck. But not only a Castle Octween, but a Mount Doom a as Mount well. Doom. I I I can't really be on board for either of those really. <laughs> I think Mount Doom's upside is so meaningless in the deck. Because it's four mana to deal your opponent one damage. Yeah. I don't understand this Mount Doom. It, it seems like atrocious to me. The thing that I think is worse that like, so this is a deck that plays Undying Malice. It plays Feign Death. It no longer plays Malakir Rebirth because having a land yeah. that comes into play tapped that only produces black and then also doesn't stay a black source under Blood Moon is just too bad. So I so putting Castle Lockthwain in your deck is like Castle Lockthwain has to be worse than than Malachir Rebirth, and Malachir Rebirth is no longer in the deck. So that I, I agree with you on the Castle Lockthwain. I'm well. Confusion. I'm also the most notorious hater of Castle Lockthwain. I've beat that you are. a million times. So like maybe I'm not, but like if you just think about it, you have freaking Blood Moon in your deck. Like how is this better than Swamp? Some portion of the time, but you know a small thing in the big scheme, which is that sure. This is a powerful black red mid range deck has extremely strong opening hands. Any of your like grief scam hands are extremely effective and beat most people as long as you have anything to back them up. And Bowmasters is a huge addition to the deck that helps you play this like, okay, I've I've thought seized you. I need to kill you. This helps with that clock. And this if you do start drawing cards to get out of the pickle that I've put you in, then it punishes you for that. And like the clock speeds up. What what I actually think is very interesting about this deck is basically Bowmasters takes the place of like the two fables and the two other random cards that used to be in the deck. So the curve has been lowered a little bit, except there are no fatal pushes anymore. So it's been the curve has been kind of just like it actually ended up the same, I think. It just kind of got shifted around a little bit, which is kind of funny to look at. Yeah, you cut some of the threes and a couple of the ones and you just have mm. more twos, which actually like was a yeah. thing about the deck that was yeah. really weird because it was like all ones and threes. Almost an Obosh deck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not really. We still got four griefs, four bone masters, yeah, you can't, you and can't two terminates. Grief. Grief, grief is part of the reason I think this deck is so good. Well, yeah, it's one of the best cards in the deck. I don't think this deck would function without grief. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, no, the deck is is quite strong. You have to mulligan pretty aggressively with it. I played I played a couple of leagues with it, and you know was playing it better by the second league. It definitely mm-hmm. has a the hands that don't have scam in them especially when you don't know what your opponent is playing 
like you look at these opening hands and you're like, okay, I mean, this is like a Raghavan Dothy Voidwalker like removal spells hand. Is this good enough to keep? Like, is this actually going to beat any modern opponent or am I going to play a Raghavan? It gets prismatic endinged. And then I just like lose to planeswalkers and then eventually they cast a one ring. Like does this actually win? And that's the thing that I'm kind of struggling with is like, in if I don't know what my opponent is playing, should I just be like hard mulling for like broken hands or like what am I actually supposed to be doing with this deck? Hmm, great question. I I don't know. When I played the deck, I was super impressed by it. I also just didn't mulligan for the scam opponent, but that was probably like four months ago by this point, so I have no idea now. Mm-hmm. But my suspicion is like the way the deck is set up, it's good enough at killing its opponent in a fair number of fair games because the cards are pretty good on raid. So I probably would like be inclined not to over mulligan is how I would put it. Yeah, and like, I, I think uh, sorry. the threat of Ragavan and the hate and grief and the hate card that's good against your deck, like Blood Moon, uh, is makes it rough to mulligan a bunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that I like found with the couple of leagues that I played, like I I started playing with like a a fable version and like pretty quickly was like oh no everybody is right to be on season pyromancer like it's just much better in this deck oh no yeah yeah. my 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 thought because i just like grabbed one from that that had won a challenge like a week ago that had fables in it um and my thought was like i guess they're playing this because it's better against bowmaster like not necessarily as big of a liability but ultimately like you know you spend your cards so quickly and also your Mm -hmm. cards are so cheap that getting those immediate cards just like into your hand and also you didn't have to discard cards for them is really powerful no so spyro is much better in this deck because i think you go hellbent so quickly in your average game yeah it's also something that you can target with undying malices which you tend to draw on like Turn, oh, the, it's like right. the card that just like vampiric tutors itself to the top of your deck on turn five or six and being able to do anything with that is really important because the whole process of flipping a fable and then trying to use an untying malice on the reflection just so much it's yeah so much work like what what it means when that happens is that like you are going to die in two turns like you get value out of it but it doesn't matter because like they have a one ring in play or they're like coughing or something yeah you're not doing anything that matters in modern no yeah i think the scam decks are good they've kept up uh, adoption of works boremaster has been very good for them yeah and like what i think it really shows is that you know, Orcish Bowmaster versus the ring only matters if you've been pressuring their life total before the ring comes down. And as long yeah. as you have been, if they're like under nine-ish life and then they ring and you Bowmaster, then it, it matters. Uh, but if they're at 13, 14 life, then they can just kind of deal with it with the cards. This one person has two Bone Crushers in their sideboard of Rakdos. <laughs> and I don't know if that's actually... I don't know if that's a genius or grift, essentially. Like... My suspicion is it's worse than it looks, but it will win a non-zero amount of games to just flaring pain your opponent out of the game. Like, yeah, it's so hard to judge that though. Like, I I just don't know. I mean, I guess my my initial thought is like Bone Crusher Giant is generally a very bad card against four color, but <laughs> right. 
basically every time that I lose against four color with scam, it's either because I've like mulled to oblivion and like whatever, they just have way more resources than me. Or it's because I played my cards, they're dead unless they have a one ring and then they play a one ring. So I like mm -hmm. maybe you just are in that spot often enough in the matchup that it makes sense. I think Bone Crusher got better since they play Halfling. And I don't mm. think they're going to side out Halfling versus you, most likely, because I think that's one of the ways you can get from under a Blood Moon. If you mm. have, like, if I was playing against Scam Postboard as Forcing, I had enough lands in hand, I would be inclined to fetch Forest, play Halfling, then try to fetch a Plains. That means I can cast, like, my Teferis and shit under it. And Leyline Bindings. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it also blocks Ragavan, which is non-zero. Right, were you or do you take out halfling in any matchup um i thought about it for a long time and i think if my opponent was playing like a weird azorius control deck with like nine thousand sweepers i would but the way the most of the decks are set up i don't because i think just modern is too brutally fast for that stuff like basically most of the games you have to do something good early is how i would put it like that's why i think halfling was such a good addition to the deck was because it actually incentivizes you to be able to bridge to your late game cards like a turn earlier, which matters a lot. And it also gives you opening hands that you're like, I have an early play, even if they yeah, don't exactly. play something for me to prismatic ending, which previously, like, you had mm -hmm. to have them play a card that made your early you game card do something. Yeah. <laughs> or, or you had Brendan Six, yeah. Yeah, like, it, this was actually an issue before where people just played like a million bolts and nothing else proactive. Whereas, like, in my spot in 4C before Halfling was printed, all this stuff was printed, I just had two Abundant Growths because I noticed that you actually just needed to, like, do something and get more Velocity. Also, like, made your Teferi's marginally better. It also, like, helped you versus Blood Moon. Obviously, I don't want to play that card, put that card anywhere near my deck now. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but it's sort of the same philosophy where, like, if you don't have enough one-mana things to do... Like, it, it can be awkward to just have, like, a million removal spells. Your opponent is not even a deck where these cards have text, you yeah. know? Yep, for sure. But Halfling just, like, solves all yeah. of that with a bullet. So, let's see. Other decks that, like, kind of did well or are worth talking about. Tron is moderately back, buoyed by the existence of the One Ring and also by the presence and power of omnath decks and then you get to be a tron deck versus a deck that's like all removal spells and like incremental card advantage it's also nice that your cartons shut off they're the one that's yeah. really good i i'm actually a lot more impressed by tron nowadays mostly because i think the fact that if you try to bosage lock them they'll just cast the one ring and just draw a bunch of things and then probably mm. answer your rent six and get out of it at some point Unless literally, like, they have the lock so early and they have a way of stopping your one ring as mm -hmm. well. Like, they need both parts. But I think the one... The, the issue with Tron before was, okay, I have three forests and an Urza's Tower. What am I going to do with these lands that's meaningful? Mm -hmm. Well, this card is very meaningful and is a perfect way to, like, punish my opponent for just trying to, like, convert my lands to forests. The, to that end, I kind of think the Tron deck should play like one more forest than they currently do, but yeah, that's a, that's a small thing. I I agree. I think that have just like because you actually can beat a Bozeju Red and Six thing going on, like make sure that your deck composition like allows you to actually do that and capitalize on the cards that exist. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I have like Tron has looked pretty good to me. It obviously has the Tron weaknesses like Raghavan is difficult to answer, although uh, Warping Whale is kind of the, the patch card that goes into these decks. And Warping Whale is even better now yeah, because you have sure. extra fours to, to bridge to when you right. don't get Tron. Oh, my God. I'm like, sorry, I'm looking at Tron lists and... This one has Boulder Branch Golem in the sideboard. Yeah, that's the one I clicked on too. <laughs> <laughs> a lovely little seven drop prototype guy, which is a six five. I've cast that ETB. a lot, but not in Tron. I mean, it's way better than Wormcoil Engine against Vern. That's true. Unless if you get Skullcracked on that turn. Well, yeah, but. Wormcoil wasn't gaining you six life against the Skullcrack, anyways. Right. Kind of like in the same category there, the Mono Black Coffers deck. I think is it it's hard for me to say that the Knight's Whisper deck is like a real deck in modern, but I have lost to this deck and it's doing a pretty specific thing, which is like being like Tron when you play against four color and making an enormous amount of mana and being like pretty tough to kill. And the Karn one ring deck is better at ringing than the one ring deck. So, the, you know, it definitely does something. Whether that something is just like generically good enough for modern, I'm not sure. This may just be a deck that's like, this is my four color killer. I don't really know what else it it's it's super doing, but you know, th that's a thing. How how much does this deck actually kill four color? Like, what if I just had four Bosages in my sideboard and I, my plan was to just go after the coffers or the Urborg every game? Is the black deck still favored? Like. That's kind of a question mark. I don't know. Right. I mean, they're continuously attacking your mana base. That's like the thing that they try to do, right? Sure. I guess that's fair. They play eight Field of Ruins. They have a Sundering Titan in the sideboard, which is hard to play without coffers. Oof. But but yeah. they only need like one coffers turn to, to you know, if you get one good coffers turn off where you like have drawn a couple of cards with the one ring and like now here's coffers i'll make 10 mana this turn and do something sure. with this karn like uh, you know this deck does surprisingly scary things and also yeah eight field of ruins is annoying yeah i only have three basic lands in my deck i don't <laughs> exactly, really think exactly. i'm allowed I, you're not really allowed to play more than that if you try to play more like things kind of break down unless if you want to play like 26 lands or something which you can't but in yeah. your run and six deck and also drawing a basic in your hand is like generally really atrocious so yeah it kind of depends on how many fetches you have i saw a suggestion that you should play xander's lounge and cut the other two triumphs uh i didn't work it all the way through but it's possible that that's correct now i don't know it, it's kind of complicated kind of like forces you to do like temple garden xander's lounge like a huge number of games but yeah You'd also have to change your fetch mana base. Yeah, because four of your fetches don't get Xander. Your yeah, Windswift Heath doesn't uh, get it. Yeah, actually, I'm a lot less about it. I mean, the, I don't know. I, I'll go into a slight digression. It's so hard to figure out what's, like, correct Optimal, in those spots. Right, because, right. like, most of the time it doesn't matter if you draw three fetch lands. Everything works itself out. Yeah. So, and the games where you have Ren Six, it extra doesn't matter because, like, you just literally get every land out of your deck. And then, well, like, actually, in those spots, I found leaving one Triome in your deck is correct. 
because I just want to draw it and cycle it instead of freaking like fetching it out for no reason. Like, right. Once you have eight lands in play and this red and six bringing back a land is doing literally nothing for you. Yes, I found I've, the same spot. I, I've had a non-zero number of games where my opponents has killed my triome when I've ran six out. And I'm yeah. Like, what is going on? Like, this is horrible for them. Now I'm like, instead of just like randomly getting a land back, I'm paying three men to cycle every turn because I don't give a damn because I have like 9,000 lands as it is. No, that's a really good tip is like you default to like, I'm going to activate this field of ruin. Well, I guess like I'll get their best land in play. I'll get the one that makes three colors. But if they have Ren and six and they have enough lands in play, like that doesn't work out for you. And and I, I've seen the same thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yogmoth has been reasonably successful, but I echo your sentiment where like I haven't lost to it as four color. And a bunch of the games that I've played against it with four color have been games where I wasn't very con- like I would not categorize myself as like good with this deck, but I beat Yogmoth a bunch of times where I was just not even competent with the deck yet. The matchup is really bad for Yogmoth. Yes, the, the that's their worst matchup as far as I know. <laughs> that and scam. Well, Rhinos, right? But Rhinos doesn't exist. Rhinos doesn't exist, so who cares? But like, it's still impressive that even with that half of the metagame being so large it's still performing well that is actually impressive to me yeah second place in one of the saturday challenges here like just kind of pops up in a decent number of places third place yeah, i got third in one of the other ones in this one yep do we want to switch to legacy oh yeah we have a whole jarvis tournament to talk about we just kind of yeah the one you actually top aided yeah why don't yeah. we do that so you played Grixis Delver in this one, mm-hmm. although only two Delver of Secrets in the deck. Asterix, yeah. Well, so there's a funny story about that, which is I played on July 3rd. I got off work early because they gave two hours work early. So I played a Legacy LCQ with Saga Lands with four Punching Fire because my theory was Bowmaster made Punching Fire better. Then I ran into my pal. Uh, well, actually, I played Sebastian Pazzo round one in a Lands Mirror, and he was a Sphere deck. He played a sphere. I'm just like, okay, I'll play a bunch more lands. Your spheres don't do anything. Because, like, in a mirror, this is, the card doesn't actually do anything. It just makes the game take longer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so he has four blanks in his deck. I mean, Punishing Fire is close to a blank, but at least I can deal him 20 damage with it, theoretically. So I beat Pazzo. I've seen it done. <laughs> but also, Pazzo in that tournament had just come back from the RC top in South America. So he was super tired. So he, like, he dropped at 0 1. Because, like, I had beaten him, but it was kind of funny. Like, he he obviously was making some mistakes he would, normally wouldn't make. Like, he tried to waste my stage multiple times when there was a forest out. That just never ends well. Mm. Um, but then round two up against Stefan Schutz, aka Mental Minstep, and he's playing basically the shell of this Grixis deck. If you look at the original version he had, he has zero Delvers, but uh, the problem, I think, with doing that is... Sometimes you have to cast days when you don't want to just to not like be dying to their stuff. And without a one drop in play, it's like kind of harder to take advantage of that. Sure. So uh, basically from his list, I cut a Mishra's Bauble and one of the Thought Seasons in the main deck for two Delver of Secrets. And sure, and I'm yes. down to 20. I'm down to 25 instances of sorceries, which is not like it's not the optimal number, but my policy is I don't go above 14 creatures in these decks, generally speaking. And obviously, he only had 12 to be in with. And with without Delvers, like, it doesn't matter that three of your spells are Mishra's Bobble. 
So, like, because in your DRC deck, if you don't have Delver of Secrets, Bob was obviously way better because it just juices your DRCs very quickly. Mm-hmm. So that that's where I came up with the deck. It wasn't me. It was someone much better than me <laughs> at basically Magic in general. And I don't say that about a lot of Legacy players, but I think like Stefan's one of the people I can say that about. Sure, but yeah. So so the the threat suite for those who haven't looked at the list, you got the two Delvers, you got four Dragon's Rage Channelers, you got four Bowmasters, mm-hmm. and you've got the Murktide Regents, and those are just like the Legacy Delver threat suite now i i suppose uh bowmaster very impressive on the weekend not mm-hmm. like i every time i see bowmaster i kind of feel like oh this is like a perfectly designed magic card almost like it it just like is so rarely like oh god it's bowmasters like what a what a terrible impact on this game hold on the, the only time you say that is i when i was seeing the just guy delver deck that people a lot of people played I put a I played my land, played Brainstorm, they played Bowmasters, I dazed, they force of willed, and I fucking died on the spot. <laughs> well, because yes. like That's because like I mean like I knew about the possibility of Bowmasters, but my hand wasn't great. I and I had a daze to protect myself, so what am I gonna do? Not freaking brainstorm? Instead I just took like a thousand damage and died like a two turns. I mean in two turns span. I don't think punishing brainstorm is like a no, thing that it, I'm it's so fine. About, but so. I'm just, I'm saying I was acutely aware of what might happen, and I tried to take some insurance against it. And like honestly, if I didn't brainstorm that turn, it's probably just going to get worse for me. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I, I don't know. Like, it, it, it can warp certain games. Yeah. But what it does mostly do is punish people playing brainstorm, which is fine. Like whatever, you know. Right. Legacy probably needs some check on that card because that card is so outrageously powerful it also like you know in modern the main thing the main cards it's sure. checking are like ragavan and teferi which are cards that i'm sure. totally okay with it checking yeah <laughs> and it rarely is like oh god there's a bowmasters in play like what do i do it's a lot of times like they got a little bit of value off of it then i kill the the bowmaster body and then i can just like kind of go sure. on with my life um yeah i don't know it, but it, it I, certainly is very good yeah. in legacy i would say the decks that are who are like oh god there's a bowmaster in play are usually the decks that are up to extreme amounts of not good yes like they're they're designed to do something that like probably shouldn't be done very often like doomsday is an extremely difficult time beating that card is what i found hmm. because it's often hard to cycle through your entire deck before bowmaster kills you like because you're already at 10 in the best case scenario and realistically speaking you're probably not at 10 you're probably at like nine or eight. Yeah, Bowmaster backing up like a turn one Dragon's Rage Channeler is like one of its best like spots to be because mm-hmm. you you deal that damage and then the pings like really really start mattering even if they don't have creatures in play. Yeah, and I'll I'll bring up a specific interaction that comes up for the versus the Jeskai Delver deck if they play fourth Arrowingus for X equals one. So that's this is X white red make uh, two two. I believe it's a knight, I don't remember, with mm-hmm. Trample nice. and Haste. And if it hits your opponent, you get the Monarch. Well, if your Grixis if opponent has... anything hits your opponent. Oh yeah, sorry. If one or more creatures hits your opponent, you, you get the Monarch that turn. If your Grixis opponent has Monarch on that t- or a Bowmaster on that turn, you get obliterated. So what happens is, person <laughs> attacks, I'll just take the damage, I'll cast my Bowmaster before the Monarch trigger, ping the token, Monarch triggers, ping the token again, 
I have two one ones. They have no board. I attack. They t- take the monarch, and suddenly, like, how do they ever win? Like, yeah. it's just a freaking nightmare. Especially if right, if they're the just guy, the controlling just guy deck, and not like a Delver deck splashing. No, even even a Delver deck, I think it's so hard to come back from that because right. like, unless you have something in place to, like already, like it's just impossible. Sure. But then I have two bodies I can attack past right. to like take the monarch and like hope to draw like a snuff out or something if you have something big. That specific interaction is why I didn't want to play Jeskai. And also because what I found with playing that card, the X-White Red card, it's not a flexible card. The problem is if you're at all behind, you're basically not allowed to cast this card. So like people who can compare that to iteration, I'm just like, this is a lot less of an iteration than like Knight's Whisper is. Like you're allowed to cat- cast Knight's Whisper when you're behind and try to draw like removal spells for their stuff. If you cast this when you're behind, like you don't necessarily get to draw cards. Like it, but my issue with the card is that it basically cements games that you're winning by a lot. Like you're, if you're winning and you cast that card, you're basically just a lock to win the game. Like it, it's not even particularly close. If you're losing, you're basically not allowed to cast this card because you're going to be a lock to lose the game like, <laughs> in like two extra turns. So that that's why I didn't really like that card in specifically the Delver Shell. Where I think I was most impressed by it is those like Carpet of Flowers decks post-board versus Delver. If they get to do that for any meaningful amount, you just die instantly. Like it's just kind of insane. Just because it's X-2-2s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I mean, this is the Entreat the Angels that Anurag's wanted forever that is actually playable. Sure. Hey, he's got Entreat the Angels that makes a, like, 5-5 five, five lifelink now, right? Like, that's, you know. That's not on MTGO, so he's sad about it. So that is the very weird thing about yes. Legacy right now, yeah. is that there's a handful of, not necessarily format-defining cards, but good role players in interesting decks that just don't exist on Magic Online. I mean, Chaos Defiler is the headliner for me yeah. that I can think of. So that one was cast first to me, and I'm just like, oh, so one of my opponents dies randomly, and my opponent's like, no, no that's no, no. not that's not what that does. And then I picked up your and I'm like, oh, I really thought the word chaos meant like, you know, the all of the other times I use the word chaos, it does destroy like a permanent randomly. Yeah. But this time it's choose opponent randomly. Well, in a 1v1 game, there's not much randomness there. So my best creature died. I mean, fortunately, my opponents had, like, freaking four life when they did this, so I just killed them with a lightning bolt, you know, so it didn't really matter. But, that, yeah, that card is... Good. That is one of the reasons, I think, to play Rakdos Painter IRL compared to, like, on MTGO where people play Rakdos now for Bowmaster only, but IRL, you get to play both, so... Sure. Obviously, insane with Welder because it has a dice trigger, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you start, yeah, and it's it's very large for its cost. It's like it's a, five a five four or something like that. No, it's a five four trampler. But it is, you know, bigger than lightning bolt. It beats every creature in combat, and it kills something coming in and going out. So also, it's black, so you cannot kill it with, with snuff, snuff out. out. That was in my yeah. main deck. <laughs> it also does not target if that's relevant. Yeah, to any creature. Well, oh, yeah. I think it kills Trunian Nemesis. Then, if you want to, it also gives you know your black red painter deck a way of killing enchantments or whatever is in play yeah just like the black red deck should be able to kill enchantments. of course <laughs> so uh that card triumph of saint catherine which is the miracle bane slayer that do, like does some weird shit when it dies let's not bother with that para o dice for ad nauseum tendrils there is oh canoptic scarab swarm which my teammate played which is a four mana one one fire 
that's recruitable, but when it comes into play, you exile their graveyard. Or I don't know, remember oh. exact wording, but you get Thopter, like, well, you didn't get Thopters, you get Scarabs <laughs> equal to the number of artifacts and lands, and you exile all, or it might exile the entire graveyard. It exiles the entire graveyard. It's from Warhammer. Yeah. And they discovered it was really good in Death and Taxes because, like, in all of the grinding matchups, if you recruit that up, you just get, like, seven one ones, and your opponent freaking dies. Oh, wow, yeah. No, it's the, also yeah, a Tormod's Crypt. Sick. Like, it, it's a recruitable Tormod's Crypt. Like, if you've stalled the game out to that point, that's obviously a really valuable tool to have. So what, when I saw that card, I was like, oh, what does this card do? I pick it up, read it. I'm like, wow, this card seems freaking great. Yeah. There's also the, like, the guy that, the, like, X guy that fights a thing. Um, Moloch. X Moloch, red yeah. green. You can Zenith for it. Secretly Warhammer 40k had a, like a bunch of cards that were actually pretty good. Yeah. There, there's a lot of really, really good cards in the Warhammer commander sets, and there's just none of them around Magic Online. It's it blows my mind. Yeah, and there's a two four that makes lands lose abilities, but they can tap for any mana, I believe. I don't remember if that was in the Warhammer set, but I know it was a commander card. Yeah. Pretty sure it was one of those uh sets. But anyways, pretty weird that a bunch of these cards just aren't online, which makes them very difficult to test because how, you know, how how else do you prepare for a legacy tournament except by playing legacy on Magic Online? And so sometimes they show up in the paper tournaments and like, who knows what we're like missing out on that we just don't know. So kind of weird and definitely affects our understanding of the format. I will tell you about one funny deck that showed up called it's on the source it was named mississippi river but this is creative technique cascade yeah it's like all all cards that like were never in standard yeah basically like the goal of the deck is to just keep cascading until you hit something big and your opponent dies when this card was first like announced in warhammer 40k i think Bob Long went on a like apprentice or or a cockatrice, sorry, not apprentice. That that <laughs> coin's been dead for years. Uh and like goldfish in a bunch. He's like, yeah, the deck's good. I think like it suffers from the problem that it's like a combo deck that can only kill on like turn four, and every wasteland is a time walk. So you probably don't want to play this very often because like creative technique costs five in a red, but it does have uh the ability that like you can cast a second one of it if you let your opponent cast a copy of it. Yeah, so like yeah. demonstrate, I think is the name of the mechanic. Yeah, it's it's demonstrate. It's from the Strixhaven decks. There's like a cycle of the techniques. Yeah, so it gets their force of wills, but also your cards are very expensive. So getting your ancient tomb wastelanded or whatever is is pretty brutal. So the deck played like all of like the Crystal Vein City of Traders. It even went to uh, well, what is the one called? Ah, oh, God, the 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 depletion ran from masks. Um, oh yeah sandstone needle yep, yeah yep. It, there were four sandstone needles i'm just like yeah you probably want to draw like three soul lands in all of your opening hands like otherwise your deck can never kill on time it just had like nine thousand soul lands in it like all of the ones that were like tapped <laughs> and you could conceivably use them for something cool stuff it is funny though looking at that deck list reading the card names and being like i don't know the names of any i i don't know what any of these cards do except for these lands like i know that this is a deck with a lot of soul lands in it and then it's casting a bunch of spells that i have no clue what the text is well eventually you cascade a bunch and your opponent loses or generally what happens is you never get to put that card in the stack because it costs a thousand mana <laughs> i believe that given that 
Delver still quite playable. What are your thoughts on the format as a whole and sort of the the composition? You know, we still got Delver. Delver still exists, but without Raghavan, without expressive iteration, it definitely loses its like tier zero best deck possible status. You know, what are the other good decks? What are you trying to play against? What are you not trying to play against when you're playing Delver in a legacy tournament? Um, I think nowadays, I think the the Grixis list I played was pretty well-rounded, so I don't really think there's that many bad matches. My guess is, like, actual Punching Fire Lands is probably not a great matchup for how I've built my deck, but it's still winnable, of course. I lost a Reanimator in the top eight, but that's because I played three Artifact Hate cards, like two Meltdowns and an Ulrod, because yesterday there was, like, a the, the day before there was a ton of eight cast and Mystic Forge running around, so I just, like, figured I could play an extra card and try to get them that way. Instead, if I played a second surgical, maybe my mm-hmm. match goes better. I will say that my opponent did not mulligan either game, so I just got absolutely shredded on the draw. Like the problem is, if, if you're playing against a competent reanimated par- player and they don't mulligan, you know you're just like you're so just far 0%, dead. Like, yeah. <laughs> like the problem is that the deck has been super weaponized. That if if they have a good hand, they can usually get through one force, if not two, and make a big monster, and it's just it's just so problematic. So yeah, I think Reanimator is one of those decks that shows up a reasonable amount. It it doesn't always have the best win rate, but I don't know how to parse it. I do think it's a very scary deck to play against. Sure. What about the bigger blue decks, like Uro decks and stuff like that? Sure. What are your thoughts on those? I always hate those decks. Sure. And there's <laughs> I just generally think their mana bases are super, super awkward, is the major problem. Like Usually a single Wasteland dis- dismantles them if you have a reasonable draw. Um, of course, I did lose to the guy who went like 7-0 in this list, but that guy played super, super well, and I immediately played against another 4C player after that, and that person was much worse, and I fucking like un- put them in the ground like in like 10 minutes, which shouldn't happen versus a control deck. I did, I did watch one of your matches where they just like put their white sources into play. You Wastelanded their white sources, and then they had no... They were not able to cast swords to plowshares for the rest of the game. Well, so I knew the way I lost that game is if they ever found their one of loam, I would actually lose on the spot because it could plow all of my shit. Because mm-hmm. like, what else can be in their hand on like turn thirteen? And they have like three cards in hand, they haven't cast anything for a while. Like it has to be like a bunch of plows. Yeah. So if they ever find loam, I just instantly lose. But th- that guy, like the way he played and his mannerisms led me to believe he was very, very, very good. Like, and I don't say that lightly because most people I think make so many mistakes versus me and like die because of it. But I think this guy made very few mistakes, if if any, honestly. Like that's why I lost the match in three. I think probably I fucked up more than he did. So that's what like in game two and three I went back and watched and I'm like, oh, there were a bunch of things I could have done differently. But I'm always aware of the clock pressure versus decks. Because our game one took like 20 minutes or something because that's how it is versus Uro decks. It just, it actually takes a while to kill them. And my plan was to cast a bunch of Soren's ransoms to get a defended Murktide, mm. like essentially. Yeah. Really like those matches, those games were really fun to watch, but there was a ton of decision-making along yeah. the line. Yeah, for sure. And then out of like the various combo decks in the format, oh, obviously sure. playing Delver is an acknowledgement of like 
I would like to have a decent win percentage against the combo decks in the format. So, you know, beyond Reanimator, what what else is out there that you think is is pretty good? What do you think is like overrated in Legacy right now? Uh, Rakdos Painter, I think, is pretty good and it's probably underplayed relative to its positioning in the metagame. It's also like, I think it's kind of interesting because it's an artifact deck that I think if you play it correctly, it's not that soft in Meltdown. Uh, what what I mean by that is you can actually slow roll a lot of your cards because the combo is so cheap to put together. Like you can just play like half of your combo out, then they kind of have to just melt down that part of it, or you can just use a saga to bait out a meltdown or something like that. I think that deck is good. I also think weirdly, Null Rod does not affect Painter very much. I realize this so much that I have a Null Rod in my sideboard. I didn't even really bother bringing it versus Painter because I didn't think it was actually going to do anything. Um, which All is it some, does is literally stop grindstone, right? That's it. Uh, it cu- it cuts off their great furnaces and sometimes like Nihil spell bomb, which my opponent did show me in game one. Because looping that one with welder is actually pretty good because you can net a card each time off black mana, which you can still do with no rod in play. You just don't. Get that <laughs> true. <graveyard>. True. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that deck's pretty good. M- one thing I don't like about that deck is the way its sideboard is built. Is it still has three Macus of the Moon? I think those should probably be Blood Moons because none of the Delver decks can beat a Blood Moon right now because they're all three color instead of two color. Mm. Yeah, splashing something or another, like a Orcish Bowmaster. So it used to be the case that you were more worried about Force of Vigor and stuff like that with regards to playing Blood Moon versus Magus of the Moon. But right. I think it, the time has just switched back where you should like maybe move things around or like at least split them so you're not so pigeonholed into one plan. Yeah, I mean, if you if you ever want to Magus the light, if you ever want to moon the lightning bolt decks, it needs to be with blood. Yeah, exactly. I guess I think Cephalid Breakfast is okay, but it's unclear to me how to exactly build the deck. Uh, I will say one thing that's really good about that deck is it's actually secretly a pretty good Ursa Saga deck because people usually just sit around trying to like kill all of your combo pieces. So if you just like make a bunch of contracts and start attacking them, yeah. you can try to put them out of position and then combo kill them. That's how I would play the deck versus a lot of those like super removal heavy decks. Unfortunately, I don't think it's great versus Grixis or Jeskai, just because like the the combination of having so many removal spells plus a way to actually close out or grind a game out actually does I think make you favorite versus Cephalid Breakfast in general. The main thing that I think every time I look at the Cephalid Breakfast deck, or really any Urza Saga deck in Legacy, is that I get really jealous of Retrofitter Foundry, and I just like badly want Retrofitter Foundry to be in Modern so that I can play with that card. Sure. I think there's a lot of reasons it wouldn't actually be that great in Modern. Like, I don't, I don't think, think it's that good. Uh, yeah, modern, exactly. Give it give it cool. to me. Get, give it. Give it. <laughs> Let me play Retrofitter Foundry. <laughs> I'll also explain that I also think secretly that card is weaker than it looks in Legacy. And you can tell because eight cast and lands both cut it. Those are the primary decks that you would expect to have a lot of mana lying around. Except in reality, what actually happens is you just have better things to spend your mana on. Like making marginal tokens isn't great. The one exception is, I think, is if you have like a weird infinite infinite combo deck, that's actually like a Saka bull like target mana to sink, like make yeah. infinite four fours. It, yeah. it's just super painful to do on MTGO, but you can theoretically do it. Yeah. I just love it. And also, also like, you know, modern, you're, 
you're hungrier for cheap artifacts because the mm -hmm. cheap artifacts are so bad. And so having like one more thing that's actually playable that you can saga for and unlikely that Urza becomes the thing again anytime soon. But like, I don't know, man. I just love a retrofitter foundry. Yeah. So the one deck that I think I want to make this very clear that I think is super overrated is the Boros Initiative deck. The way people have it built, I think their mana bases just don't function. Like, they just don't have enough white-red sources. Uh, I was talking about this with someone. If that deck had, like, literal, like, the white-red cycle of, like, filter lands from Odyssey, it would actually be a much more playable deck, but that land doesn't exist. Wait, wild. Oh, yeah, I was like, oh, what? Yeah, this, you're describing a land that doesn't exist? Yeah, but exactly. But your statement of it not existing made a lot more sense to me. <laughs> yeah, but basically this is how bad that mana base is, like... I think if it had that land, access to that land, it would fix a lot of things because that would let it cast its like X white red spell. It would let it cast like its, you know, Fable of the Mirror Breakers or stuff on turn two off of Soul Land. Mm -hmm. Like it it just has a bad mana base. I don't know how to fix it because people want to play four Cavern Souls, but the problem is not all of your creature types line up in that deck. And it doesn't cast the sorceries or the Fable of the Mirror Breaker either. Like it's just a tough nut to crack. Hey, I will say, Miria, famously not a human. <laughs> I will say, in the games where that deck can cast all of its spells, it is pretty terrifying to cast and play against because, like, all of the threats are just like kill you instantaneously. Sure. Uh, speaking of killing you instantaneously, thoughts on Doomsday right now? Uh, Doomsday, I think it's fine if you're really into that sort of thing. Like, I watched <laughs> my buddy. I mean, I'm not a Doomsday player because I kind of feel like. The way I play Magic, I just want like a mid-range deck that can kill my opponent quickly. That's my strength. Uh, Doomsday is like not really like that whatsoever. No. Doomsday is like, okay, how can I shorten this game and play around the most things possible with these five cards? And if I mess up, I'm dead, but that's fine. That's a risk I accept because I do get a lot of, you know, free wins is what I would say. I don't know how to like make that deck play around Bowmaster easily. I'm sure there's a way to do it. I'm sure there's like some, like you can do like Sheldock Emrakul or some nonsense like that probably is the most efficient way if you really want to. But I'm my brain's not wired that way. And plus no one plays Sheldock Emrakul in the main deck. So I think exactly fine. Do understand that you're signing up for a lot of risk, but you do have a lot of free wins in the format. Like a slow control deck basically auto loses to you. Death and Taxes auto loses to you you know the green decks i think generally auto lose to you unless they play opposition agent in which case you're dead like th <laughs> that's the one thing i don't like like oppo agent being highly adopted by some of the fiend artisan decks is kind of brilliant for decks like doomsday like it you're just you know, well now you have no library great great game <laughs> yeah you lose half your life and the game <laughs> That, that is, like, you were talking about Bowmaster as being good against Doomsday, and it is, but, like, the opposition agent, if you're playing oh, no. with it, is yeah, it's, unbeatable. Yeah, well, that, I mean, you're still a force of will sometimes stay yeah, deck. Yeah, of course. Not, not all of the Doomsday decks play days. I don't know if they should or shouldn't. They usually, whenever I see Doomsday lists, they play between zero and two dazes. They never, like, play more than two. I, or I don't see it recently, my, at least. My suspicion is picking up a land is actually a huge cost in the deck, is the reality behind it. Um, yeah, because you're, you're always working on 
tight margins in that deck. So that I guess that brings me to the next logical combo deck, Mystic Forge. Um, so I was talking to Sam Black because uh, apparently he asked Caleb about his Mystic Forge deck. And he's like, yeah, I just copied Caleb's list. I'm like, oh, so do you still have the Lunatic Emrakul? And he's like, yeah. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that card's so bad. And then, like, literally the next round, Sam comes up to me and he said, yeah, if Emrakul was literally Walking Bliss, I would have won the game easily because I had Paradox Engine plus Mystic Forge. I drew Emrakul, and there was nothing else to go off with. If he just had drawn something that cost between zero and four mana, he would have easily won the game instead instead of, like, bricking on that turn cycle. <laughs> oh, yeah, just like... And, like, I'm just like... It's so clear to me that Emrakul shouldn't be in that deck without even playing a game with the deck. Like, it just looks so out of place. Yeah. Yeah, Walking Blast is superior in that kind of deck. Like, every time. Yeah, I mean, it's good early. It also kills your opponent if you have 9,000 mana voting, which that's the end... That's what the deck looks like in the end game. Like, you've just made, like... Because, like, you know, the Paradox Engine plus Keys plus Monolith, that's, like, you know... I don't know, plus three mana per iteration or yeah. whatever massive number it is. Right. It gets bigger have... and bigger and bigger as you keep going. Because you'll cast some more grim monoliths and untap all your existing ones. Yeah. It it just gets very bigger. And I knew it was Caleb's list, because I asked him if he had the Maniac Surge Hacker mech as well. The and the reason to play that one is you you can cast it off two soul lands and it kills collector roof. I'm just like, yeah, I don't really care about that. Why aren't we putting the freaking Skyboat? Skyboat's unbeatable. There's also the Masticore, the newer one. The one you discard a card and kill a thing. That one kills Null Rod, which is actually kind of nice for that deck. Because nothing else can kill Null Rod in that deck. You do have to wait for your next turn, right? Is how that thing works. They have Null Rod in play. You're not doing anything but waiting I for know, but... It's <laughs> <laughs> <Sure. laughs> Yeah, that's Mystic Forge. Uh, it, I just thought it was very funny... Because Sam obviously didn't message me or whatever. I'm just like, I could have very easily improved your deck if you had just asked me like for 30 <laughs> seconds. And I would tell you exactly why. And he asked me if I was happy playing my deck. And I'm like, yeah, I think Grixis is pretty good. It requires you to like have a lot of format knowledge. And Sam like fired back. So you're saying that I couldn't do well without format knowledge? And like, he was sort of like trolling a little bit. Because I know he's done well in a lot of legacy tournaments without literally like actually knowing like the ins and outs of every deck like like he fucking brewed zombie bombardment for that grand prix and top aided and he also <laughs> copied reed's bant's deck so that wasn't my implication which is saying that like the reason my deck is built the way it is was i had a very clear vision of what was i going to do in like basically the top 12 matchups in legacy which is something i can't really transfer easily that's what I, what I actually meant to say but you know that's a subtle point <laughs> and that's a much longer sentence than yeah. having format knowledge is helpful with grixis delver i mean any other decks yeah you want to touch on it's weird to me how heavily played eight cast is because it never seems to win rl um Ooh, that's so interesting because i feel like it's fallen off a lot and it's not like i don't see it in results that much our legacy seed played against it twice which I don't know, maybe that's a small end thing. But in my experience, I always see it a lot more IRL because it doesn't have that many reserveless cards in it. Yeah. Is why I think. That is, that's actually a really fair point because it's very difficult to build a deck that you always have access to in Legacy that doesn't have any reserveless cards. And this is one of the very few that actually has zero reserveless cards, right? I mean, looking at the like list of decks 
this is just like the cheapest legacy deck that's not death and taxes you know that this costs like 14 this costs basically as much as a modern deck to build maybe as much as like four color to build or whatever because it's got ancient tombs and mox opals in it but compared to decks with dual lands or decks with grim monolith or you know whatever Gaia's Cradle, whatever your reserve list card of choice is, where like several of the decks in the metagame cost four to five thousand dollars, like this is a significantly more accessible deck. Alright, I promise this is my last rant about sphere resistance and lands. The combined <laughs> record of those pilots was like nine and fifteen. I'm just like, please stop putting sphere of resistance in your deck. I promise you I'm not trolling you. Just play punching fire and play a functional mana base. You'll win more. Trust me. I'm not just saying this to fuck with y'all. <laughs> okay, so I mean, two-part question. Like, number one, should people be playing lands in this metagame? Do, do you think it's fine? And number two, if you think you should have main deck sphere of resistance in your lands deck, does that not mean you should just not be playing lands in this metagame? I think that's exactly what it means, personally. Like, <laughs> that that's why it's so bizarre to me. They're trying to be like a Mishra's Workshop deck, except it doesn't work. Like, because your deck isn't really set up like that. You have a bunch of things that you want to spend mana on later. That's, that's like, the weirdest part of, like, why this deck is built like this to me. It also has, like, nine green sources without mocks and only 13 with. I'm just like, why are we cheating on all of these axes that we don't have to cheat on if we just build the normal deck? Sure. And that's, like, I think if I played against any of those people, I would have shredded all of them, like, personally. Because what happens is when you put Sphere in your deck is... It also just increases the play draw dichotomy. Like if you're on the play, it, like your 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 hands on the play get better if you can turn one sphere, and your hands on the draw get worse. So you're widening, you're like making your deck more volatile as well. Mm. Is the other issue. Whereas punching fire just works player draw. Like oh, you played a turn one threat. All right, land mox p fire. Oh, you counter it. That's fine. Play a grove turn later. Try to kill it again. You know. Yep. This all and makes I, sense to me. And. It, and the reason I played like Punching Fire like recently was my thought was Bowmaster would condense the meta to be more fair decks, including Bowmaster itself, like with all creatures that died to Punching Fire. Yeah, and if you think that's what you're going to play against, you're going to play against like a lot of, I guess, blue decks generally. Then, then lands has always been the choice for that type of meta game, but given the, I don't know the. The doomsdays of the world and whatnot. Well, the, the mono black deck that won, I think, I guess I should touch on that. That is not a particularly exciting matchup for me to play with a traditional lands deck. Because mm. uh, I think, well, let me, let me click on it again real quick. But I think they had like a million leyline effects, including Voidwalker. And Voidwalker actually does work okay versus P-Fire. Because the damage isn't like checked until like the P-Fire is exiled already, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the Dothy Voidwalk does not die until after the Punishing Fire is yeah. in exile. And also, I hate playing against those like decks that accelerate out of Karna's lands because it's very hard to remove, and they can just like do stuff that like bullies you, and it's super super annoying. Yeah, I mean this mono black deck is sweet. This is just like a pure like kind of a pure dark ritual deck. Um, you know, like lo- lots of two and three mana cards. You've got griefs, you've got Karns, 
uh, thought seizes, Chrome mocks, uh, a couple copies of the One Ring. You know, it, it made its appearance in, in Legacy, and then this is a Helm of Obedience, Leyline of the Void combo deck. I will say the the it was open deck quest for the top eight, um, and his round one opponent for the mono black deck was a mono black Stor- saga storm deck. But like the way the deck was built, you like had to go through Infernal Tutor. So the guy just mold to like a turn one oppo agent and this the storm deck was dead. So oh. like obviously like it's kind of like, you know, that's just how magic is in top eights, you know, great. Not very interactive. I I, I do respect the like knowing what you're doing sure. enough to like look at a list and recognize like Yep, this is this is my plan, and yeah, it's, it's a pretty easy plan to mulligan too. Like, yeah, it. I think personally, the heuristic for me with this monobot deck versus the monobot storm deck is I'm mulliganing to either fast Karn or Apo agent, and I don't think you can really beat either of those things. Sure, it's just kind of funny. I think this deck secretly probably is not great for like Jeskai Delver, if I had to guess, because none of your th- like only a few of your threats are graveyard reliant. And the four Erythlingus doesn't care about, like, any of these cards you're casting except for, like, Shieldred, you know? Like, you get an attack pass versus literally every other creature. Right. You get a lot of your percentage in a decent number of matchups by just being a four main deck Leyline of the Void deck. Where yeah, you, I agree. Like, that's an actively good card in your deck. I, I think this happened to Canister, like, the last time he played Legacy, where his one was literally playing this deck and there was just a Voidwalker in play on turn one. Because the guy, like, Cancer's opponent, like, was probably pretty sure Cancer was playing Reanimator because he usually does. <laughs> yeah. Because Cancer just almost never plays Legacy. Cancer hates it. And, you know, it's fine for him to hate things. He has his tastes. He likes modern. He likes vintage. And he's okay with other things. He just hates Legacy. The only other thing that I want to remark upon is the naming of the four color Snoko deck. Which oh yeah that, played that neither weird. Snowlands nor Oko in the obviously doesn't play Oko in the deck that card isn't legal in Legacy but doesn't play Snowlands either. No, that's just part of a long-standing Legacy tradition where a deck keeps the first name someone just thought of. Yeah, I mean <laughs> in perpetuity. This is oh God. This is just Uro control, which benefits from the existence of Delighted sure. Halfling, like a you know yeah. new card alert. And, and four copies of the One Ring. Like, this is like 20 cards different from any Snoko deck that has ever existed. Yeah, I think this is, if you literally track it, this might be literally Unrog's last list, like plus or minus two sideboard cards. But the mm-hmm. guy just played... Is playing fourth or Lingus? I didn't realize that. There's one because it makes it easier to win some like weird late game scenarios otherwise, especially with the one Sanctuary in your deck. Like, you get a lot of mana in this deck in the late game eventually because you flood out either with Loam or you just draw a bunch of cards. Like, Uro makes you flood more often slightly as well. So I think that is the best way to win that is not vulnerable to Krakus. That's the primary reason to play that because both Mix mm. and Boo and Uro are vulnerable to Krakus. Like, so just having one way to beat Krakus in your deck. Well, like, there's also one Wasteland, which is also mostly for Caracas, but the combination of those cards makes it a lot easier, I think. Gotcha. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Legacy looks pretty cool right now. I don't know if I will have any reason to play any of it, but I enjoy looking at these deck lists, so there's that at least. In about three weeks, I will be at a local team tournament. 
nice. not playing the legacy seat, but okay. I will be observing the legacy seat respectfully. Sure. <laughs> I think the lead deck for legacy would be Mystic Forge personally, but I don't know. See, actually what I've played in legacy most recently is Painter. Like even before it was Rectus. That that that's also a lead deck to me. I think Rectus is or Rectus Painter is pretty good. So if you ever want, yeah, to I, I like Painter. I think it's a really sure. good deck. I think registering four times Goblin Welder, four times Goblin Engineer is like a pretty lead sort of thing to do. So <laughs> yeah, I think I a lot do of people, love welding. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand what those cards actually do. Like it does a lot of weird shit. You swap anything you want. You can swap your opponent. You can stuff. swap your opponent stuff. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah goblin motor secretly very good versus eight cast like if you ever get a chalice and is on zero versus them they lose the game because their deck doesn't do anything <laughs> uh anything else that we want to talk about or i think that's good for one episode i've i've said everything i want to say i think for episode 300 air horns pew 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 pew, pew. pew. <laughs> <laughs> um well cool thanks guys really appreciate it this was a fun episode thank you so much to everybody for tuning in and listening we really really appreciate your time jarvis making a a 300 that you can't see because this is an audio medium hey hey you could see it on the live stream which we do that's true we are recording the podcast live on my stream generally on tuesday evenings twitch.tv slash ccr underscore grindcast Jarvis, you've been streaming. Where where can people find you on Twitch? Where else can people find you? Uh, Twitch.tv slash Jarvis is the most logical place. Uh, YouTube, same username. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at JKYU06. I really should align those at some point, but it's kind of a pain in the butt. It's literally impossible to change anything on Twitter right now. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll just leave it be then. Yeah, probably for the best. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Really appreciate it. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.